Recorded live. Well, welcome everybody. It's another version of the outrage that continues off road live. Welcome everybody. It is May seventh, two thousand and eighteen, and it's a special version of Off Road Live. Welcome to our humble studios, the Desert Tower Studios in the Big Bad Desert. And, of course, this is Monster Mike, and the Baja crew is here, the entire Baja crew. We want to salute you guys for being in today. It's one of those beautiful desert days, you know, blue skies, everything's perfect, and uh, we greatly appreciate the crew being all present uh, on today's show. Quite frankly, uh, you know, our friends are here with us, Ram Trucks, Hard Rock, Marlboro. Budweiser, the Baja Racing Hall of Fame, and today's special sponsor, Cabo Safari. That's right. You can go on a Cabo Safari today. Just go to cabosafari.com. Well, welcome our special guest, Igor. How are you? I'm very good, Mike. I'm uh, happy to say that it's gorgeous up here in uh, Los Angeles area as well. Yeah, the weather is super. Yeah, it finally turned. It was all cold last week, and it even, uh, you know, it even rained uh, down in Baja during the Nora races on uh, one or two days, I understand. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being on our show today on this beautiful day. And, of course, on time, thank goodness. Thank you very much, Mr. Production, because oftentimes I'm dealing with these off-road characters who, well, it's like herding cats. (laughs) Hey, you know, it's uh it's a wild west spirit that uh astray. <laughs> Dude, you had you just nailed that like you can't believe. It is it is the wild west spirit that we have out here. Well, uh we will get on to um, a very special interview today. We'll break out the super special guest uh in a mere matter of moments, but we certainly can talk right now about what's happening this week with Baja Sun Films. Yes, we're very excited. It's finally time for our uh, debut in uh, Hollywood for the film festival, the Independent Film Festival. Has uh, we've been uh, notified that we were uh, officially selected, and uh, we are going to have a fabulous time at the Grove in West Hollywood this Thursday at the opening gala. It's going to be a full red carpet with press and celebs and everything. Uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed. We're hoping that uh, Chad McQueen's going to turn up and grace us with his appearance. Uh, Steve McQueen's son, as well as Gigi Garner, uh, who uh, lives uh, right here in uh, West Hollywood. Well, that's super marvelous. And in any time to to celebrate wonderful images and in art is uh is a, a definitely a time that I love. Um now uh have you seen what you're going to be uh, uh awarded? Is it uh, is it one of those really bitchin' uh, uh pieces of uh, art? It is. It's a beautiful crystal sculpture, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's like a crystal monolith with uh, our names inscribed on there. Uh Jack Cooperman, the director. Myself, uh, the producer, and Jane uh, Slinter, our 
associate producer, and we're looking uh, forward to it. You know what? I haven't been to the farmer's market in uh, quite a while, now that I think of it. It's a historic place. It's been around for over 100 years, and uh, the Grove, of course, is the new modern little mini town that they put in there. They have their own little tram that goes through there. (laughs) It's incredible. And uh, it should be a fabulous, fabulous event. Uh, Our uh, short film screens at 4 o'clock. And then at 6 o'clock, the red carpet starts. And uh, after that, we go inside for the big award ceremony at 7. And then there's a big after party happening in a secret location to be revealed by me, to you, Monster Mike, and your listeners exclusively Right now. Are you ready? I love it. I love it. I love exclusives. The after party is going to be at the fabulous W Hotel, right smack in the middle of Hollywood. It's a really, really gorgeous place. I've only been in there once, once before, and wow, it should be quite the knockout. That sounds super cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Thursday, we're, uh, we're uh, kicking off the weekend. And then, of course, the festival runs all the way through the 20th. And uh, there's many, many good films to see. Uh, people can find the schedules and all the uh, other info at ifsfilm.com. ifsfilm.com, you'll see uh, it's a website that's got uh, some of their past films that they premiered in there. And there were some biggies in there, i got to tell you. We are in good company. You know? Well, and and rightfully so. Uh, the Legends of Baja, and it is so titled, am I correct? It is. It's Legends of Baja. This is, uh, by the way, a newer uh, revised cut of the film. It's 22 minutes long, and uh, we took first place in the documentary short film category. And uh, for, for 2018? Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. Now, this is the fourth time that this film won in uh, the same category. Out of of, uh, five festivals, we are now four into it, and there's a couple more coming up. But this one's really important because it's right here, you know, in our wheelhouse, and uh, it's uh, the 26th annual. It's, uh, you know, not just... uh, bunch of people that started this in their own garage uh, last year you know this is a this is a no this is an established thing yeah this is a world renowned uh you know a class a list type of festival so give us an opportunity my wife's very happy we're gonna get dressed up she got herself a new dress and uh we're gonna we're gonna stay out all night i'm not leaving that after party uh, <laughs> out, i'll tell you they got to kick us out of there. Exactly. I love it. I love it. So let me uh, get into uh, some of the intimacies then, because uh, I'm sure people in the business uh, know these answers, but certainly the, the people in off-road or desert racing, this is, uh, this is not their wheelhouse. Um, so what are the, the tricks of the trade uh, to, to getting a win in a film festival? Well, uh the main thing is, of course, uh, promotion. Self-promotion is the key. 
And uh, we have a good team here. Uh, Jane Linther is responsible for our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook feeds, and press releases. And, you know, I post uh, something all the time. And that's what it takes, just uh, the more the buzz. But, of course, that only, you know, that only helps, uh, uh, you know, after, after you've been selected. That helps to win. Just to even get chosen is incredibly hard because there's literally hundreds if not thousands of entries in each category, you know, especially in a festival of this caliber. It's just, uh, you know, just to even stand out from the bunch, just to get noticed, just to get selection, you know. What you're always hoping for is that initial step. That first step is the jury selection. And once you're in there, then, you know, then uh, you're, you're halfway there. And, of course, the quality has to, you know, speak for itself. Uh, this is not a festival for student films or works in progress and uh, anything, you know, this is this is for completed uh, works. Uh, like I said, we just revised a little edit of it. And so the version you may have seen earlier, this one's a little better and snappier. There's always new things to add, you know. I haven't even dropped in anything that we shot at the Mint yet. That'll be in the next version. Now, uh, boy, that, I, I think what you just mentioned is so applicable to so many uh, different forms of work. But uh, and a lot of people think that two two uh, word phrase is uh, is uh, is bad. But self promotion is critical. Absolutely, and you got to hit the social media. That's where it's all at these days. You know, you got to get those uh, those likes and those shares, and that's what it's all about. It's really now. You know, now, uh, in going to the next film festival, um, I'm sure for every film festival, the, the mix of the activities prior to submission are, are a little different. Oh, yeah. You know, not everyone has a full-on red carpet press line. Uh, not everyone even uh, throws, uh, you know, an official after party. There's always, you know, celebrations from the individual filmmakers and their groups and their teams and uh you know, some festivals are more geared towards exhibitions. Some are more geared towards finding distribution. You know, this one is a bit of both. It's important in the industry. It's known in the industry, and it's open to the public. And uh, in fact, I believe it. Uh, it just sold out a couple of days ago. The all available tickets that uh, were available to the public have sold out. The last email update I got was. Saturday, and that was that they moved in. They moved the the award ceremony into a bigger theater, into a bigger venue in there, uh, because of the demand. And they released uh, just a handful more of a few tickets, so there's still time to get them. If anyone's interested, if anyone's in town, it's going to be a very good time. And online, of course, you can uh, see a little blurb and a little poster of each of the film. There's a little description and dialogue. I don't think they have all of our trailers online. You know, I haven't, I haven't searched uh, their site that deeply, but I know there's a description of uh, and a log line for each film, and it looks like a really great collection of films this year. Are you going to be submitting a... Um, uh or are you going to be uh, making public uh, the award-winning uh, feature? Yes. Uh, well, uh, the, right now we're at the short film stage, and um, yeah, once we're once we're done with the festival circuit, we're going to make it available online. 
uh, for private downloads. And uh, then we're moving on to building the feature, getting the rest of the film out of the vault and getting it transferred. And uh, as we uh, said before, we're going to start a – we really want to make this a people's effort. So we're going to start a crowdfunding campaign and uh, – you know, we want everybody to be a part of it and to contribute. I know there's people out there with more film, more photos, more stories in their vaults of their dads, their grandparents, you know, their granddads, grandmas racing down there in the 60s. And 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 we'd love to, you know, keep it. It's like a – it'll be – the way my, my full-on vision really is that this is – going to be a continuous work in progress project that will evolve and expand year after year. Well, I love your inclusion of of other people, other families, because it's such a similar experience uh, throughout uh, the racing community over the years. It is. It really is. It's such a rich history with, you know, 50 years of official documented stuff. But, you know, you know, there's so much more out there. I know there's... Uh, I know there's pictures. I know there's some old, you know, 8-millimeter films in people's garages out there hiding away just, uh, you know, grandpa's old stuff, <laughs> dad's old stuff. And Well, some of it's in plain view. I mean, some of the photos in Bruce Meyer's books that we saw at his birthday party. Yeah. Fantastic images of pre-Baja uh, racing in Mexico when they were doing the Mexican 1000. Yes. Yes. Oh, and by the way, uh, speaking of Bruce Myers, what a nice man. He sent us, did I tell you? He sent us a copy of his book, two of them as a matter of fact, one autographed to me and one to you. And uh, I am uh, keeping it safe for you here until the next time I see you, Mike. But uh, if you like, I will read your inscription right here, live on the air. Another scoop. Fantastic. Check this out. This just came in just uh, I think about a week ago because I know they were um, I know they were in uh, I know they were in Baja in support of the Manx team. Uh, but but am I right? And I can't be I can't stand alone in this. But when a book comes to your doorstep, is that crazy good or what? Oh, you know who even gets that anymore? Everything's online, you know and. I was really worried because, uh, you know, there's been so much uh, stuff in the news about these porch pirates, you know, people are stealing <laughs> right up your porch. Oh, no, let me tell right. you. Right. I belong to a neighborhood group around here where we live, and, uh, you know, there's constantly postings online. Oh, we saw these people do this and this to that. Everybody's going to camera on the ring phone here, but when you get an actual physical book, a package in the mail, it is. It's so exciting. I've become like a kid, you know? Absolutely. Makes I me love, younger. I love getting stuff in the mail. <laughs> Especially free stuff. Oh, there you go. So, check this out. So, here it is. Uh, by the way, there's a foreword in Bruce Myers' book by Ivan Stewart. There nice. Very nice. But I'll just read the inscription here. It says, to Mike, this, my first little book, is also about another first. Uh, off-road runs, wait, uh, off-road run, our, how off-road runs in Baja started. 
Enjoy. All my best. Bruce Myers. Oh, my God. Super cool. Yeah. And I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but you're right. Just skimming through it, looking at some of these old pictures. Of course, he's got them all, you know, all the Manxes. He's Mr. Manx. But I know that there's other people out there who just, you know, don't even know what they got until they look. So, please, everybody out there in Radio Land, if you remember hearing stories as a kid of your dad or your grandparents, you know, heading out to Baja and having crazy adventures, and they you know, took some photos, took some film, go look, man, go look. Well, listen, let me, I can't pump this enough, uh, Igor. If you want your family standing alongside James Garner and Steve McQueen, you need to talk to, to Igor of Baja Sun Films. Exactly, you know, uh, as our director Jack always said, you know, the Baja, the desert is a great equalizer. I love it. You know, it it from, absolutely is. From the big movie star to the totally sponsored driver, there's really not a big difference to him or a guy who built his buggy with his own hands in the garage. I love it. Well, but considering his history, that his dad was a uh, driving mechanic in the Indy races and he participated in uh, the, the development of the Hobie Cat, uh, Hope, uh, he, Bruce Myers is uh, is a living legend. Oh yeah! Oh my God! You know, and uh, even though yes, you know his his original design was copied so many so many times, I think it's a testament to his brilliance that that is the design that everybody decided to copy. You know that it has been copied. There's no question about that. And Igor, honestly, uh, uh, I love the concept of uh, submissions uh, to uh, putting them uh, right alongside the legends of Baja because uh, truly, you know, these memories are legendary that everybody has of the early days. And uh, I, when I paged through uh, Bruce's book uh, at the birthday party, it reminded me of every early image that I've seen of Baja California in that era. And if your family was in and around doing that stuff, you know you've got media that you want to share. Put your name on it. Put your family uh, history on it. Get it to Igor. Igor, how can they get a hold of you and, and uh, get you that content? Our website, BajaSunFilms.com has a contact tab on it, and uh, just, you know, start right there. Send us a message. Tell us what you got, what you'd like to do with it, and uh, we will uh, absolutely reply. I read all the messages personally. Uh, just uh, go to the contacts tab on bahasunfilms.com and take a look at our uh, videos uh, page on there as well because that's where we put up. Uh, a lot of these clips, you know, right now they're all the cl clips uh, that we shot. You know, this is our stuff on there. But it's uh, a good place to go where you see additional little videos which are not in the film, at least not yet. Well, and just think, you and or your family member who loves Baja can stand shoulder to shoulder with the legends of Baja, just like Steve McQueen and uh, James Garner 
with the help of uh, Igor at Baja Sun Films. Well, uh, what is uh, the next film festival that you're shooting for, Igor? Uh, there is one in Toronto that's coming up. Uh, I know the notification data on it is in May. In fact, there's a couple of them that are coming up in May. Uh, there's one in Australia. You know, I only apply to, like, the most exotic locations. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to do some traveling. Exactly. Exactly. Last year we went to Milan. We talked about that. Oh, I shot so much video in Milan. It's such a gorgeous city. And, uh, you know, the medieval architecture combined with just a modern, thriving, uh, best-dressed population I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, that'll be one of these little clips that'll make it to the website and eventually in the TV show. But uh, definitely, uh, I love going to exotic locations and everything. And Well, I have to ask then. I have to intrude and ask. Um, is, you know, is I it... have to ask you, don't, uh, pardon me for interrupting, but I have to Please. ask you, Mr. Monster Mike, all-knowing of all things Baja, is there a, you know, Mexican version of the, is there like a Baja film festival? Has one ever been held? Yes, as a matter of fact, there is. Tell me about it. There are several film festivals in Baja, California. There is one, however, that has a uh, great history, and I highly recommend submitting uh, to uh, this particular one. In fact, uh, uh, 19 would be a good year to do it because it's the 50th of the Summer of Love. Yeah. And and this is the Magic Pueblo of Baja, California, and it is in the, the land of uh, Summer Love, and that is Baja South, and that would be the Todos Santos film festival wow you're gonna have to yeah i'm gonna write that down i'm gonna have to look that up it is it is it would be my pleasure to be your humble guide to uh southern baja and the todo santos film festival you've been there before you've attended i've not i've not only attended i've been a i've presented oh wow yeah i've been on the stage i i did a couple of presentations um i adore everyone in uh, Todos Santos. It is the Magic Pueblo. It's a magic town. And um, uh, they every day is, is magic in Todos Santos. But the uh, but cinema is especially celebrated in, uh, in Baja California at Todos Santos. Wow. I love that. And what time of the year roughly do they do it? Do you remember? Yeah, of course. It's, uh, it's typically in the spring. And uh, just to let you know, uh, Todos Santos at one time in history was a sugarcane capital. So in the late 1800s, there was a good part of the town was built in that era. And so there's a large number of uh, red brick buildings, uh, very substantial, beautiful buildings and beautiful construction that was done uh, in that era. So you stroll through and you're, you you wonder whether this is a Hollywood set, I kid you not. And no matter what the Eagles say, <laughs> no matter what the, uh, the rock band the Eagles say, and I'm and I'm I, I dead I am dead pan serious about this. Every word of that song is based in Todos Santos. Wow! 
every word of it, especially, and it'll come to you when you're having a cocktail at the pool in the uh, hotel of your choice uh, in uh, Toro Santos, and you hear the lyrics and you're, you know, sipping your cocktail at uh, poolside, it is a dead ringer. So uh, for anybody to say that that song has nothing to do with Toto Santos, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and it's intentional that the Eagles are saying that because uh, uh, they seriously, they do not, they did not want to shine such a bright light on uh, the Hotel California, if I might say so. And let me uh, express my great gratitude to uh, Deborah and uh, Alejandro in uh, Hotel California. Uh, California, but uh, there is there is not a moment in Toto Santos that is not pure sublime. Wow, wow! You can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. Yeah, hell, hell, yes! That's exactly what's going on there, and <laughs> and and suffice it to say, Monster Mike uh, approves of this message. Hey. So uh, yes, I, as a matter of fact, I'll I'll walk you through the submission process and uh, introduce you to the very fine people of uh, Toto Santos, and uh, we will get it on. Please hook me up. I'd love to view it there as well. This will be the Mexican premiere of the movie, the Baja premiere. It's a perfect location for it. It is. Uh, it's not on any of the. Um, uh, more modern routes, uh, except for our upcoming off-road expo. The uh, our off-road expo race this year is the Coyote 300, and the race actually starts in downtown Todos Santos. But one of the very first uh, Gringo races that had ever attempted to uh, do a circuit in Baja South, uh, we ran right through the middle of town, right past the uh, Hotel California for the 2006 Cabo 500 that. Uh, 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 the community and I got together and designed. We started in La Paz and finished on the Golden Sands in Cabo San Lucas. And on the way down, we we passed right past the Hotel California, right in right by the front door. Wow! So it's 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 down there. It's down south of San. Francisco. It is. It's south of La Paz, north of Cabo. Oh. And as a matter of fact, uh, many of the old older timey races. Even this is pre modern era. And any time uh, someone says pre-modern, that means they were using racing vehicles that were built before 1963. Whoa. Okay. There, we have images uh, online of Model Ts painted up as racing cars uh, finishing in 1956 in Toto Santos. <laughs> Did they even have roads there back then? Well, they had race courses. You know, and at that time, one of the best routes of travel, and see, that's that's what was, you know, in, in pre-modern, uh, that's all that stuff, and even you know, for a while there with the Nora races and so forth, they were racing on the existing roads. They weren't they weren't racing on on uh, the kind of stuff that the modern stuff races on now, uh, like the old Route One back in 1967. That was that was the race route. <laughs> they did, are you kidding? What are you going to do? Go off of Route One and go into the into the sand? Hell no! Why would you do that? <laughs> You'll never make it to La Paz if you did that in 1967. No, they they were using the main roads then. Uh, 
uh, and in those days in 1956, as an example, but before then, in southern Baja, the main race route was La Paz to Todos Santos. Wow. Yeah, don't tell anybody, but, you know, the old research shows um, history goes back a long way. And one of the things in Baja South, and this is the reason why we call our special event that we do once a year from San Diego down to Cabo, we call it the Cabo 1000, because the race routes started before the gringos started coming down. Come on. the You know, our brothers and sisters of uh, Baja, Mexico, were doing this a lot longer. And they were just doing it in Mexico. And one of the oldest race routes ever is uh, La Paz de Todos Santos. And if you look at the current map now, it's a, you know it's a little windy once you get out of out of La Paz. But once you hit the road and you're you're like high speed midway to Todos Santos, it's yeah. very fast. Yeah. And he was even very fast in 1956. Yeah. Because they had, they did very good. They did a very good job at the road building in those days, and for good reason. Because they had so much uh, cane sugar uh, and industry uh, in Todos Santos, uh, that had to be brought back to the capital, to La Paz, and the uh, the wealthy and middle class uh, went to vacation from the capital in La Paz during the summer, and they went to Todos Santos because of the cool breezes off the Pacific, just like in the song Hotel California. Beautiful. Oh, it sounds like a magical place. It is. You want to go? Yeah. Let's go. Let's go to Toros Santos. Anyway, so it's, and it's right on a beautiful estuary, palm trees, beautiful uh, uh, palmera, you know, a beautiful palm uh, uh, area. And it's, of course, it originally started as a sugarcane boomtown, but it eventually evolved into a, a Palapa village where, you know, most of the people had uh, uh, Palapa homes and, and uh, Palapa buildings as opposed to the beautiful uh, brick structures that the uh, wealthy would build, uh, who were the kings and queens of the sugarcane industry of Southern Baja, California. And so uh, ultimately what developed is a wonderful art community. The art colony of Todos Santos is known worldwide. Charles Stewart, uh, rest his soul, uh, started a, a gringo art community in Todos Santos, and it grew and is now a booming industry in Todos Santos. Now, all, different, all different kinds of art. Is it, is it coastal or is it inland? Coastal. Oh, so they have beach as well? They have beaches. In fact, they have several of some of the best beach breaks in, in the Republic of Mexico. But they're secret, and I'm not supposed to talk about them. I'm, you know, I, I get paid by the locals to not talk about them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I certainly haven't heard of anything like that. And, uh... and, and one of the big exciting parts of my life, and thank you for asking about this, uh, Igor, I seldom get asked questions like this but when i do it 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 reminds me of uh uh back in 2004 when i came across this great race called the dos mares race and i just i went over there and i talked to the local community and i said hey why don't you take it to cabo a couple of times it was a loop over to over to la paz and i said well why and we'll drive right past hotel california in todos santos how does that sound 
And, of course, I had to pay them to do it. But they did it. They thought it was a good idea, along with my check. And then uh, uh, for a couple of years, we did a wonderful little professional uh, – in fact, it was a national championship desert off-road race in the Republic of Mexico for several years. And uh, now we do it as, a, as mainly a tour – uh, in, of Southern Baja California, but along the route, we, we operate it like it's a race. So we use the race vernacular. Uh, we use, um, uh, you know, all different types of, uh, uh, vehicles and signages and flags so that it, it's, you know, more of the drive is exciting as opposed to getting on a motor coach, uh, with grandma and grandpa and taking a tour. Yeah, sure. No, of course. And uh, Toro Santos is a very important component of it. Um, fortunately, I've uh, fallen I've fallen in love with everyone in Toro Santos, and um, you know whether they want to fall in love with me, that's up to them. Uh, but uh, as much time as I get to spend in Southern Baja, uh, the majority of it is in Toro Santos. Well, I tell you, I I love everything you've just said, and I want to enter the film in it. And if by some luck we actually win or get selected, I love it, man. You and I are going to get ourselves into a buggy. We're going to take the the course, the old course, and we'll hightail it down there for the premiere. That sounds great. And you'll you'll love the venue. The venue is a over one hundred year old theater. Wow! In the town square. Adjacent to the the uh, mission that has mission bells that ring just like the song Hotel California. You know anybody who says anybody who goes, oh no, that has nothing to do with the song. They are lying through their teeth and they know it. That that song is all about Southern Baja California and the the beautiful magic pueblo of Todos Santos. Yeah, warm smell of Kalitas rising up through the air. That is correct. And let me let me say that uh, I've I've now worn out all of the money that I get paid uh, monthly by the uh, Chamber of Commerce down there, so we can talk about something else. Um, <laughs> but there is another film festival. There is a Los Cabos film festival oh. that happens in December and. Uh, everybody knows who travels down there that uh, a very good time to be in Los Cabos is the holidays. So um, uh, remember when I was uh, proposing that uh, you and I go down to Los Cabos during the holidays? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to surprise you and, and uh, you know walk into a film festival that you didn't have any skin in so they can just enjoy it. <laughs> this year, like 18, and then 19 – what we'll do is we'll we'll do a submission. Let's do it. I love it. I okay. Because everything that the Los Cabos Film Festival is not, that's what the Toto Santos one is. Uh, Los Cabos is very highbrow. It reminds me of the Palm Springs Film Festival, which I've gone to for many years. Right. Um, and uh, I've even ventured into the, I think it, it wasn't Victorville. I think it was uh, one of those uh, desert communities that only a couple of years ago did start in somebody's garage, which I also enjoyed. Um, but I've always been a fan of cinema and uh, still am. In fact, uh, it reminds me of a conversation I just had with, with my mom this afternoon when she was uh, 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 talking to me about the uh, – uh, time where uh uh <laughs> i don't even know if i should talk about this when uh grandma was complaining to dad about the tires in one of our uh, vacation drives 
And suddenly I saw Imogene Coca in, in uh, Chevy Chase, and I went, oh, my God, that's the reason why I love that film. Because um, that's exactly what happened. She kept complaining about the tires, and my dad went nuts. <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely lost it, got out of the car, kicked all the tires. Uh, hilarious. Thankfully, we didn't have to bring Grandma back on, on the uh, roof of the car, though. She, yeah. she, she did successfully return. <laughs> no, but I love film, love uh, love everything about it, and uh, can't wait to, uh, now that we've talked about it uh, nice and private, uh, and we'll do a submission at uh, Todos Santos, we'll do a submission at Los Cabos, but i got to tell you, you and I need to be prepared for this, because these people are going to go bonkers for this down there. I I hope we get a war reception. I mean, this is this is all about, oh, this is right there. Okay, this inter- this is just an, a, a natural course of conversation. If we were over a couple of beers, I would talk about uh, the next uh, thing. And I have to tell you that um, Southern Baja is covered with uh, celebrities. And I'll give you an example how. There's a, a place in, um, I can't give you the town name because it's a secret spot, but north of Cabo, uh, you'll walk into the... Um, the restaurant and there's a picture of Bing Crosby with his daughter in front of a dune buggy and it's very possible it was a Myers Manx from the early 60s black and white and you're I was constantly and you'll hear this from everyone in Southern Baja uh, all the Desi Arnaz John Wayne you know uh, Crosby stories where that's where they got out of Hollywood to go on vacation in those days. Yeah. And, wow. and they didn't they didn't drive it. They would fly into the little airstrips down there and get away from Hollywood. And it also reminds me of the stories that I've heard out of Ensenada of Errol Flynn on his sailboat. Oh, he was legendary party thrower and his sailboat at his house. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he would get away from, are you ready for this? Have you ever heard this story before? He got out of Hollywood because he knew uh, J. Edgar Hoover had a wire on him. Yeah, yeah, they were trying to catch him with stuff. Supposedly he was into little boys and it was was, uh, verboten back then. Well, I had not I had not heard that part of it, but I had heard about the uh, you know the three lettered agency, and just to let you know, that's the reason why a lot of Hollywood uh, celebrities in those days uh, went to Mexico, and it was because they felt that that was the only time they could really get away from the uh, paparazzi and the uh, uh, the long arm of uh, uh, three lettered agencies. Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. That was uh, the playground for the rich back then, exactly. They were away from prying eyes and away from the law, and, uh, you know, it was a place where their money could buy them anonymity. Absolutely, and there's there's a book I have to circulate to you. Um, I've got an extra copy from the author, and it was, uh, pr- it was written uh, several years ago called Satan's Playground about Aguas de Caliente, the casino at Tijuana. 
And that's another location that uh, Crosby uh, went to early on, as well as uh, many other Hollywood celebrities. And they got their game on down at the the Caliente racetrack in Tijuana. And uh, ultimately, you've probably heard this story, I'm sure, but they fell in love so much with uh, everything about Mexico, everything about our brothers and sisters of Mexico and the, the, the wonderful uh, people and way of life of Mexico, that that exact uh, design work of the uh, casino at Tijuana was brought up by Crosby and his partners, and they found a piece of land in Del Mar and built their little uh, Caliente racetrack at Del Mar. Wow. That's exactly why the Del Mar racetrack is even there. And it's the reason why uh, the, you know, the main guy of, um, of the uh, racetrack at Del Mar was Don Diego, you know, a representation of a Sarape uh, uh, wearing a uh, good friend of uh, uh, our Southern Baja, you know, Southern uh, neighbor, uh, and that was uh, because it was a, a knockoff of the uh, Tijuana Casino, Awesta Caliente. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was- and just think, and just think, all of those those people uh, had wonderful experiences in travel during those days. And they, you know, they did everything that they could to keep those memories, those feelings going and so much so that they brought them to the United States. Ultimately, it led to uh, other works of art, uh, not just uh, architecture at a racetrack, but thing, lots of things in film, lots of things in uh, um, modern film. Uh, an example of that is uh, some of the work uh, that was done uh, by uh, a company I'm affiliated with in the horse wrangling for the film uh, that Brad Pitt did, uh, uh, in uh, Los Cabos called Troy. That was all filmed out in Los Cabos. And the reason why Brad loved the area so much, uh, he told me, was because uh, it, it reminded him of lands much, much farther away than uh, simply Los Cabos, which is like a beer and a half away flight now, um, that... Uh, uh, not only did it, he bring his major investment to Los Cabos to, to do the film, but he continues to visit there as well as uh, other Hollywood uh, celebrities. I bet he'd love to get behind the wheels of a buggy and do a few miles. All the time. Just, I mean, everybody does once you get down there, whether it's an ATV around the uh, the old lighthouse, which you can't do anymore, uh, but they could still take you to some dunes uh, that are m- maybe not as large as the ones that were shot in the film, uh, Troy. Those are all private property now. Uh, uh-huh. Yep. But back in the day, which was not too long ago, 15 years ago, you could hire an ATV and go all over those dunes, all over the area where uh, uh, the uh, film was shot and... Um, uh, there are now just new areas that are uh, have been pre-designated for uh, off-road activity in Los Cabos. So I seldom get into it, but almost every place that you'll go, uh, uh, including the closed El Arco, the El Arco Hotel, which has now been closed 10 years, um, you used to walk into the cantina up there, pictures of John Wayne fishing. <laughs> Because that's where they hung out. That's where, as a matter of fact, John Wayne loved it so much, he invested 
with the Parr family and and help them build build the uh, hotel Cabo San Lucas. Oh wow! Yeah, lots of Hollywood uh, celebrities uh, pitched in uh, seed money. Uh, to uh, help build the Hotel Cabo, as well as in some of my interviews with Michael Naval, he tells me that Don Francisco was an investor at the Hotel Cabo San Lucas. See that? I mean, he was a big player in those days. Yeah, and it's, if you could fly, then you were automatically part of the club. If you were flying into uh, the little strip at the Hotel Cabo San Lucas uh, down uh, at Bahia Chileno, uh, you were a member of the club. I mean, you were walked, you know, you were walked right into the place and treated like a king. And um, uh, Michael has lots of stories about uh, the Hotel Cabo, which at some point we'll we'll get on the air. We'll tell all about that uh, long lost uh, golden era of uh, Hollywood celebrity in in Baja California, where you know a plane would fly by, and the next thing you know, you'd open up the canopy, and and there was. Uh, Bing Crosby, his daughter's wife, and the rest of the family. Yeah, listen, I tell you, man, I I went to all that celebrity, you know, history stuff, and people don't know about that end of it here. They think everybody went to, you know, Nevada. Everybody went to Palm Springs. Everyone went to Lake Tahoe back then, which they did. But you know, nobody knows about this part of it. Yeah, they were in Cabo, and in particular Baja California. Uh, for not just the getaway, you know, they could recharge their batteries and everything, and it wasn't going to East Africa. I mean, they, you know, a lot of the celebrities loved the world travel, but after a while, you know, after the fifth, sixth trip to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to uh, Eastern Africa, um, and that was, you know, the late 50s during the uh, East East Africa safaris, that was the happening place. Africa was the hot spot for adventure. Well, what happened was all of that uh, that era heyday got transferred to Baja California in the early sixties. Um, no matter, right in our backyard. It's right in our back. It's a beer and a half away by air flight. And um, well, back then it was two beers, but now yeah. Well, think about it. it you were in a prop job back in those days. A lot of times. Oh, By yeah. the way, you want to you want to listen to the uh, pre-show interview that we did today with uh, Baja Bill and, and uh, Michael Naval. They actually talk about the heavy lift aircraft that they brought into the uh, uh, Hotel Cabo. Uh, Bill talks about uh, when they flew uh, heavy lift aircraft for Nora into the Hotel Cabo. Wow! Yeah, he still remembers that. Talked about that, and then that's what spurred Michael Naval to talk about him. Uh, and Don Francisco flying over La Paz with uh, equipment for the Baja boot and Steve McQueen that were stuck in uh, a salt flat uh, in uh, La Paz. What? Just yeah, just unreal uh, uh, stories, uh, interviews in the uh, pre-show interview today. Wow! Just crazy, crazy cool, crazy cool. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that I, I've loved coming across for 25 years now, um, like coming across the bartender at the Hotel Cabo who used to serve uh, John Wayne and Bing Crosby and Desi Arnaz. And he, he told me how they drank, what they drank, what kind of people they were. Um, that's all the stuff that we, we do in our, in our uh, travel trips uh, called Baja Safari. Go to BajaSafari.com. Uh, if you're interested in that kind of material, that kind of travel, uh, go there, uh, send a join message. We'd love to have you along. 
yeah, sign me up, man. I'm I'm down for that. Well, the only thing I can tell you is that 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 bar stand that was there, and I even met the guy who built it and then served all those celebrities. He was that young when he when they built that place. Um, he had gray hair, of course, at, at the time that he told me all this. But now uh, that uh, that bar location is no longer there. Not only is it on private property now um, and uh, not open to the public, but uh, it was also hit by a hurricane. It got washed out to the uh, out into the Sea of Cortez. How long ago was that? Uh, that wasn't long ago. That was only about uh, seven, eight years ago. And it was, the last images that I remember seeing of it, was, it was on MTV. They had uh, bought out the hotel and were using it for a, uh, a television, television program that was being shot by MTV, you know, where they buy out the whole place and they let young people run amok in the place. Yeah. And uh, it was on that show that they had uh, they had modern film cameras uh, shoot my favorite bar going out to sea. Oh, it was heartbreaking. Oh my God, that's a piece of history right there. It was a piece of history being washed out to sea. But that happens, uh, you know. Uh, the, the land down there is uh, like cake. Uh, it's a it's a granite alluvium, and all it takes is just a little bit of. Uh, rainfall and it, it'll go uh, right out to sea well uh now that i've uh i've uh, done my tap dancing uh my friend i think we have a guest on the air oh, oh hi it? there hello hi there hi, hi jack. jack this is igor on the air with monster mike good to hear from you very good sorry i couldn't get to you sooner no we we are greatly appreciative of you spending your valuable time with us right now. Igor, if I, if I may allow, please introduce our special, special guest. On the air with us today is Jack Cooperman, the director of Bahastan Films, the film that we've been talking about, and a world-renowned cinematographer who's worked on many, many Hollywood films and who uh, was personal friends with uh, our stars of our film, Steve McQueen, James Garner, and uh, he can tell us firsthand what it took to make that movie. Igor, it's all yours. Okay, how are you? We're good, we're good. Thanks for coming today, Jack. Can you hear us okay? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, I hope you can hear me. Uh, uh, please ask me, you know, any questions. Uh, I can give you, you know, as a background, I first became aware of what was happening in Baja uh, in the late 60s. And Baja actually was more connected with the sporting and off-road motorcycle uh, and car guys than in California than it really was with Mexico proper. It was uh, really very integrated with Southern California uh, individuals uh, in that era for camping and sporting and so forth. And uh, at that point, the race just started to happen and uh, and I had known uh, Don 
from the days that he was pioneering the show uh, TV Mind with the commercials, where at the end, of course, the car goes through the paper shell sign. Uh, and working a lot from him and other people down there. And uh, what I saw was really a race that was being done by the average guy building and putting it together with family and friends in, in their own backyard and garage. And there was starting to be a little bit of involvement by larger manufacturers and sponsors, but it was still very homey and low-key, and uh, people weren't afraid uh, to tell each other what they were doing or what their plans and experiences were. And I always saw this as, uh, in those days, uh, as a G-rated family-type entertainment film. And that was my main direction, and from there it was proceeding to buy the uh, exclusive rights to film that, and that's when I started dealing with uh, Ed Perlman also, and the Mexican 1000. But most of my contacts were with the racers and the race teams and some of the early sponsors. Uh, uh, Hurst, uh, Granatelli with SDP, uh, Vic Hickey with uh, building the cars for Garner and McQueen, and uh, Bill Strom working with Ford, uh, uh, with Pernelli and Mary Minor and Rodney Hall. And uh, it was really so easy to move around. You didn't have to go through corporate executives and appointments. It was just, you were there, and people helped each other, big team or little team, and it was just a great family event, and that's how I looked at it in those days of 69 and 70. Now, before you ever went out and decided to film it, did you do any racing in Baja on your own? Uh, I had been down there, yeah. I had uh, friends down there and, uh, that I had met, uh, some of which I'm still in contact with, uh, that had driven cars and been in early races. And we would go down and just do, it was a great place to run a motorcycle. It was an adventure to get from some place uh, where there was nothing in between you and where you wanted to go if you broke down. But uh, it's a wonderful thing, and uh, I think a lot of people experienced it. It's not really something you can experience anymore, at least not on this continent. But uh, and a lot of the people I met were just terrific people then, and we've stayed in contact for, you know, close to 50 years. Well, Jack, uh, this is Monster Mike. Thank you very much for uh, gracing us with your presence uh, uh, in uh, answering our questions today. Uh, tell, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, somebody who I adored, uh, was my very first sponsor. What experiences did you have with George Hurst? 
And it's wonderful talking because it does spur memories back. Uh, we had uh, probably the first uh, all-female race team that was running in a buggy that year. And uh, I know uh, some of the friends of theirs, when they uh, were coming down after we had, they had come out of uh, uh, Punta Prieta, uh, had discreetly marked two cactuses 20 feet apart, uh, men and women. But uh, uh, they were great ladies, and that was some of the early uh, places where they could show their equalness and superiority when needed. Oh, that's, I have to tell you, that's a great story. I mean, hearing about a gal uh, racing team back in those days, that's amazing. Yeah, we've got some of that on the, our footage, too. We do, we do. I think who we're talking about here is Alisa Patchen and Carol Bryant. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, uh, in, in your mind, uh, Jack, uh, when you when you relive this experience, your own personal experience of this this entire shoot and the and the shoots that you've done uh, of Baja racing, other than the obvious that you you've already spoke of, and and I absolutely agree with you that this is so much uh, involved in the people that you were around. Uh, what about uh, what about the land that impressed you the most about Baja racing? Oh, well, yeah, all right. Well, the first thing, I mean, uh, that would come to mind is just the beauty of the land and, and along with it, the people down the course. <clears throat> because at that time, there was no paved road. That came a decade later. So when you wanted to go from Ensenada to La Paz, you did it on dirt or you didn't do it. But it took you through, uh, you know, uh, maybe some people don't see the beauty, but they've got their own views of life. But for, for me, it was visually just stunning, uh, of course, especially the early mornings and the quietness of it. Uh, and along with that beauty that was there, and the, I tried to show it at the very beginning of the film before we busted with the, the noise of the race cars coming through this, the little farm. But uh, was the logistics in those days to get that amount of miles of race and inaccessible areas you know, documented and recorded on film uh, where it would, you know, match the quality that we were seeing if you're visually driven. And obviously I had a commercial production house. I was in my 20s, uh, and I just said, this is too beautiful. It's too great a story. And it all works together. And... Uh, you know, obviously, it's. I had to put it aside because you know you start having family, businesses, things get strained, and uh, some of the ways that people want to do it, I don't think were fair to the participants. So now, with you know Igor's involvement and more people 
becoming aware of what off-road racing has for such a large part of our community, uh, the awareness and recognition of what a few people saw very obviously, you know, decades ago, is very rewarding to know that uh, that love for the feeling, uh, the isolation, the beauty, and the basics. And that's what it was. Uh, your vehicle, the land, you were, you were basic in those days. It no, very clearly, Jack, uh, what you're talking about is extremely elemental. I think uh, nowadays, uh, I think there are there are a good number of people who want that experience, who who would love to either time travel and go back to see what you saw, or today they can venture out and uh, experience what uh, what you saw as best that they can. Now, in that elemental feeling that that uh, you're expressing, and in getting back to those visuals, how? What year did you shoot in Baja, California? Uh, the, the majority of all the footage that I covered was uh, on the second race that was ever done, and that was in 1969. The 68 now, race, there was a little bit of wild world of sports, uh, and that was fine. It, it was photographed with a different style in mind because of a different client. I had also done different sporting events in uh, California and other places uh, for ABC Wider World at that same time. But by doing it on my own, uh, once I knew it was available to purchase those rights, I knew I could do it in a different direction for a different market. And I sort of was thinking the same way the participants were, but as a filmmaker rather than a racer at that time. And uh, going to what you said earlier, Mike, racing in Baja in those days for the great majority of the people and individuals was exactly diametrically opposite of what Formula One racing was in those days. Yes, it was it was actually it was primitively simple, am I right? Absolutely, and that was the beauty of it. I mean you uh, I mean we've got guys, you know, coming across the finish line by walking your bike in, and somebody says, oh, it broke down, you lost a cylinder, what happened? And he says, oh, well, I ran out of gas. End of story. Uh, but it came in, or, I mean, I know times when uh, Strop was coming in with the winning car with Larry and uh, Rodney, and uh, one of the, the front wheels and the brake assembly came off. Well, they couldn't use the ones they had from the parts because they were different sizes. Oh, well, you put something on a different size tire, a different size wheel, and you forget the brake cylinders, and you drive it across the finish line. Uh, that's the way it was done then. The incredible human and motorsport storyline is endless in those days. 
yeah, there is. I mean, the more you look at, if you go back and look at the footage or the catalog, there's so many, which is what I see as a filmmaker, individual stories. There's a thread that's common to all, but they're all uniquely personal. Now, let me, I'm going to try to tie it in to the, to the era that was happening at that time, Jack. Uh, Jack, in, in your mind, uh, reliving this and, and thinking about what you went through in those days, was there any connection to what was happening in the wider world in the Summer of Love in 
pretty hard to drive that desert route when you're stoned. Well, you as know, a matter of fact, that's a, that, Jack. That's exactly, and Igor. That's exactly the reason why people explain today that families explain today why they go to the desert. Why do they involve themselves in desert racing? Why do they go to Mexico to Baja race? It is almost anti-cultural. It's it's something that uh, you know they want to take their families to get something pure, something elemental, something more family-oriented. Absolutely, uh, and it's not quite. You know, we're still doing that machinery, but it's in it, from what we're capable of. The people are trying to go back to basics. Absolutely. Well, uh, Jack, I got to tell you, you've uh, you've synthesized exactly what was happening uh, at that time. Uh, just as a frame of reference, uh, did, were you ever able to meet Carlos Santana? Uh, I and I used his music uh, without uh, before I had ever met him in a little promo, and I was careful to watch the length I used. I met Carlos, uh, I was introduced to him years later uh, 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 through Bill Graham of um, Fillmore fame, but uh, I didn't know him at that point, but I knew his music and uh, Carlos and John Mayhall, and it, it was just a new direction uh, in sound in those days. Well, that, that choice of music is dead on, Jack. Uh, for anybody who knows uh, this type of sport and this uh, cultural lifestyle, uh, that, that choice of music was dead on. Uh, uh, and as a matter of fact, just a, as a point of history, uh, Carlos Santana played on Revolution Boulevard in Tijuana as a youngster. He played in a place called Mike's Agogo that uh, the individual who uh, owned the joint, called Mike, uh, raised money from uh, not only Carlos's uh, stay at his place, but other uh, great artists. And they, uh, Mike eventually built a place called Mike's Sky Ranch that is now uh, famous and infamous with Baja racers around the world uh, as a place to go to and, and camp out and enjoy Baja racing in Baja, Mexico today. I've been there, and uh, it's a great place. It used to be on the uh, the course for the 500 back then. Uh, it wasn't on the course for the 1,000, but we would cut over when we were doing motorcycles up to Mike Sky Ranch, and then you could go down uh, easterly uh, to... Uh, uh, visit Josefina at her beachfront uh, casino and uh, haciendas. Well, that's my my next question. So it's 1969. You're shooting one of the very uh, uh, first uh, Mexican 1000s, uh, and uh, you you know of uh, Mike Sky Ranch, Mike Leon Sky Ranch. Um, that, by the way, we'll, we'll be talking to Perry McNeil later in the week, and Perry will tell you all about Mike Leon, his, his old acquaintance, his friend. But, uh, wow. uh, Jack, tell us, tell us if you can about what was it logistically like for you to produce the film that you did? 
Uh, well, that's interesting. It's like a separate book, if you would, separate from what we turned out in film, because at that time, one, there was no roads. We were working within the budget that we thought we could obtain. Uh, there was also no commercial radios or amateur radios of foreign nationals allowed in Baja. And that was primarily done in that era because of uh, other than Mexican nationals coming in and uh, lobster poaching in commercial ways. So they didn't want any other radios down there for these people to be aided by. Well, that, of course, set up a problem logistically for us, which I was able to overcome using friends of mine that are amateur radio operators uh, in Mexico and in Baja. So we were able to run the six-meter rigs for communication. There was no cell phones, uh, nor obviously computers at that point. Uh, we went down, besides pre-running the course, which I had done, we pre-ran it by airplane, and uh, I worked very heavily with uh, Paul Mance Aviation in those days and brought in my own pilots that I had worked with uh, uh, for the helicopters. And those were the days of B-1 uh, Bells that worked the Jet Rangers of today. Uh, and so we had a fly down uh, with uh, aircraft in ahead of time, mainly the Cherokee 6, uh, and place along the route 55 gallon drums of aviation fuel, mark out our strips, clear it up because the only way we were able to work that much area and that many uh, pit stops and checkpoints was to leapfrog our crews, uh, which all of us were in sleeping bags on the ground. Uh, and move the people from place to place. And we basically set up our own film crew, but we also set up an aviation uh, unit on our own. And uh, we are initiated from our base station, uh, which is typical of that era, was from uh, the... Uh, uh, westward window of the bar at the Rosarita Beach Hotel, and, uh, and from there we uh, had our communications and our one piece of asphalt uh, runway to start from. And hey, so Jack, hey, hey, Jack, the, uh, the bar at the uh, Rosarita Hotel is one of the best HQs in Baja, California. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the airstrip, as you know, was only 25 feet wide because it was actually a piece of the old Highway 1. And, um, and if you didn't take off at the end, you uh, were looking at a 
you know, the Frank Barnes, the uh, Jim Mooney's, and all these guys that were in acrobatic aerials, and all of these guys primarily, I mean, not myself and not a lot of my crew, but I would say all my pilots had spent time as aerial members of World War II. Uh, one of my pilots, Tom Mooney, uh, didn't like to talk a lot, but uh, he was a retired uh, Marine Corps colonel and just a plain general guy. And later on, uh, about less than a year later, he introduced me, invited me to a birthday party with uh, one of his guys he flew with in the Pacific. And I was fortunate to meet Pappy uh, Boynton of the Black Sheep Squadron before it ever went to television. Because, and, you know, these pilots sort of matched in attitude and simplicity the people that were driving the race courses as participants. Uh, oh, yeah. Now that I think about it. Yeah, you needed adventure oriented, skilled individuals to accomplish those tasks. Yeah, and there was a lot of things that uh, were done off camera by some of the pilots and some of our uh, uh, reconnoitering uh, in advance uh, that wouldn't be tolerated uh, this side of that border. Uh, they wouldn't have a license if they did up here what was done down there. Well, but, but, um, it, but it was necessary to be done to get the job done. It was also the mentality when, uh, you know, you, you put a, a pilot in an aircraft and uh, you, he's on open run and he spent four years of his life, you know, flying low altitude over enemy combatants. Uh, you know, sometimes they uh, like to have fun with farmers and bales of hay and uh, just mess with the people just because they can. And uh, I, had, I hadn't thought about it, but there was so much similarity between that practical joke and ease of life mentality of the half dozen pilots that I employed as the drivers in the race. And there was a very similar mentality yeah. of life. Well, much of this, much of what they were doing and much of what they do in their daily life uh, can be uh, structured and in, in, uh, in thought through as a, as a military operation. Absolutely. I would say, except for two of the eight or nine pilots I had, all were proficient in flying uh, post-World War One canvas aircraft. Yeah. Well, uh, suffice it to say that the resort builders uh, in southern Baja who are patrons of mine, one of them was a ex-World War II uh, Army guy who hand-built several resorts in southern Baja, California after he came back from World War II and had participated in sending DC-3s over the hump into China. And it took those kinds of skills with logistics and mechanicals and just general get-it-done knowledge 
that he's the guy who built the water system in Los Bariles, Mexico. They still possibly wouldn't have an operating sewage and water system if it wasn't for Bob Van Wormer down in uh, Los Bariles. God bless his soul. Absolutely. Two things. Uh, My Guide to Aviation was a book that had been put out called uh, Airports of Baja by a wonderful gentleman at that time who was retired by the name of Pancho Munez. And Pancho pioneered aviation in Baja, created the early aeronautics and other things, and stayed in business until he got older and the big corporations wanted what he had. But um, actually, one of the drivers in the race, who was probably 19 or 20, and I still communicate with him, uh, was head of all water projects in later life, and after he graduated engineering, and uh, was the person who's responsible for the reclamation water projects, both in Cabo and in Ensenada right now. And that's uh, uh, Raul Sanchez Diaz. Very and, uh, cool. Yeah, it's amazing now, how things evolve. Now, did uh, did Mr. was Mr. Munoz responsible for the the heavy lift aircraft that landed at, at uh, the little airstrip down in uh, at the Hotel Cabo during the Mexican 1000? Not at all. Pancho uh, was living up uh, north of the border around El Centro uh, at that point. Uh, okay. Uh, so I just used his books, his charts, uh, and uh, it's still a great book. I have it. If you haven't read it, it's a wonderful book, and it's called The Airports of Baja by Pancho Munoz. I will definitely look it up. I I, uh, I have quite the library, but I know I don't have that one. Well, Jack, let me let me continue in that vein. We were talking about logistics. You talked great about the the radio. You talked great about the, uh, uh, the the air network is absolutely crucial. You had almost to have your own uh, your own uh, uh, air force. What did you do for ground transportation in those days? Uh, we. Uh had arranged uh, with a lot of the drivers that I had met on free runs and stuff, and uh, I had purchased a large quantity in those days of uh, surplus aerial gun cameras that uh, had preloadable uh, magazines that only held about 60 or 70 feet of film, and uh, I took the cameras and, uh, you know, at that time modernized them by pinning the shutters and stabilizing the speed on the motors because for aerial gun cameras it hadn't been necessary and a lot of these cameras at that point uh, were 30 years old or almost 30 years of age. So we used a lot of those. We mounted them in vehicles, mounted them on participants, um, and showed them how to reload them, preset focus 
offices and uh, F stops or had somebody that knew what to do when. And uh, we have a lot of our coverage is right from the cockpits of the vehicles that were participating. Uh, and then as they would come to the various checkpoints, light crews would refresh them, take the exposed film, check everything was running right. And uh, at the checkpoints, of course, is where we kept uh, our beat units and our sound uh, uh, crews to get uh, synchronized uh, uh, recordings of everything. Uh, it was a very interesting group of cameramen and soundmen that we used. Most of them all went on to much greater notoriety and uh, recognition within the film here industry within the the next 10 and 20 years of their careers. Yeah. Hey, listen, I'm going to ask a couple more questions about logistics, but then I, I definitely want to get into a, a little bit of location talk with you. Um, and then uh, we'll get back to the, the people uh, that, that you're speaking of there. So uh, logistically, you've talked about uh, how you did the shooting. Uh, you, you've talked about uh, a little bit about the ground transportation and uh, your HQ at the bar at Rosarito. Where was your where was your base of operations in Ensenada? Well, well, it would have been with us, uh, which was not what it is today. Uh, would have been with Mikosan at the San Nicolas, uh, and our base of uh, operation in La Paz was out on the uh, very close to the finish line at a, a motel, and that's what it was, an old motel, uh, run by uh, Norberto Hanel, uh, a Mexican-German descent uh, national. And, and that, uh, was, that was far out of La Paz. Yes, very much. And uh, I used, uh, by choice, uh, because... Just great people I have met over the years down there, uh, local uh, people. Uh, I've had some of the, the fishermen in La Paz that had race cars. One of my dear friends I helped sponsor in later races uh, would uh, drive the course in a, an MGTD. And uh, so... Uh, there was just uh, no pretentiousness and no airs about, I think, any of the people we worked with. Uh, it, I did, it's funny you think about the era now. One of my cameramen, and you had mentioned Woodstock, I had to get a rush call to get him across the border because at that time... Uh, the uh, officials at the border for Mexico weren't going to get him, let him into the country because hair on this male was below his shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> and he was not about to cut it in that day. <laughs> and uh, 
he went on to shoot many features, both with, uh, actually a couple of my cameramen became, uh, uh, photographed several of Steven Spielberg's films. Wow. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, Alan Davio was one of my cameramen. Alan's retired, not actually in good health right now. Uh, and Alan uh, never drove all his life a car, never owned a car, always used taxi cabs. But we put him in a car and said, here you go. It's it's Laguna Chapala. You can't hit anything. You're driving with the camera. You aim it. Oh, and, my uh, God. In a taxi? No, no, in a, a dune buggy. We made up, we had a couple of buggies that we built as camera cars. Oh, okay. And, and uh, I had drivers of, that had driven the area, but sometimes they would just have fun with my cameraman and say, you know, I'm tired. You better drive. <laughs> Alan won the Academy Award, of course, for E.T. But uh, in any event, uh, yeah, we had a young bunch of people with new ideas and new directions that were just starting off in an industry. And we were young, not guided by old rules and standards, and that that's really pretty much the way the race teams were in that race. So we were sharing the same philosophies and adventure and the way we looked at things without any preconceived notions and ways that it had to be the way it had always been. And that never entered the equation for us. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get back to that. That's a marvelous, marvelous point. Probably the best one you brought up in this wonderful conversation. But let me get back to the land one more time before I forget. Out of all of that stuff that you saw, were you able to go to Los Cabos uh, during that uh, that period while you were filming? To go where? To south of I'm La Paz. Uh, a little bit. We didn't go all the way down to Cabo on that trip. Uh, what we did, which was a little different, uh, and there was different resorts down there, one that had been, you know, that uh, I remember they said, well, Big Crosby owns it, you know, over on the Gulf side. But uh, once we got to La Paz and the race was over, the awards were over, sure. I told and I had transportation back with, uh, you know, a uh, commercial uh, uh, airline, local airline, uh, Aeronavis. Uh, so was it a I DC? Told, was it a DC three? Uh, you know, I can't remember at this point. It was That's definitely. Okay. That's uh, right. It was propeller, but yeah. I offered all my crew at my expense. They could stay up to a week after the race. And I would pick up whatever hotel and food they wanted. They wouldn't be on payroll because we weren't filming. All the equipment was already on its way back. No, uh, you pay you pay their expenses. Absolutely. That's a hell of an offer. 
always green and lovely. Uh, and again, because of the source of water, there was a lot of farmland, and it became a center. Uh, it was a, a definite interesting place to also fly into because uh, one end of the runway was mountain, and the other end of the runway was a 2,000-foot cliff. Did you ever uh, get, in, through your travels in Baja, California, shooting Baja racing, did you ever get a, an invitation or a chance to go inside one of the uh, the homes of the Baja Rancheros? Absolutely. We stayed in a lot of the homes, uh, both during the, the race and in our pre-racing. Uh, there was, the, you know, a lot of places we went to, and you know the, uh, the pit stops that are there, there was no uh, Motel 6 or Best Westerns <laughs> down there. Uh, and uh, uh, if there had been a Motel 6 in that era, in that place, it would have been a 10-star hotel. That's but, right, uh, absolutely. No, uh, you know, we stayed, which was nobody had a problem, wherever it was necessary. Sometimes it was out in the desert. Sometimes it was behind a, a building with a, one wall to break the wind, and sometimes it was in a, a little motel that had been built in the 30s or 40s. And, yeah, uh, oftentimes those hotels or or, or motels in, in Baja, California, uh, at that time were actually first built as homes, and then uh, the, the residents would move either next door or to another uh, residence, and then they were they would uh, use the rooms that were built as bedrooms as a motel. Absolutely, and as they uh, would earn income, they would add on to them and try to build something for their family or their family and their children to take over. And right. They expand and they would, you know, create a little restaurant and area in it. And, uh, yeah, absolutely, we did that. How often, uh, when you went into the Ranchero's home, was the floor dirt? Oh, uh, boy. I would say inside the homes, maybe uh, 20, 25% of the time. Yeah. So, uh, the streets were dirt, the sidewalks were dirt, but the homes, uh, you know, they had uh, either wood or concrete flooring on them. Yeah. And uh, now some of the, many of the uh, Pueblos in, in Baja California are uh, very much the same as they were when you traveled there to do your film. Now, obviously, things have, have changed. That's a, a good number of years, 50 approaching next year. But uh, many of the experiences that people have in traveling to Baja California nowadays, uh, we do take them into uh, homes that the uh, floors throughout the entire property are dirt, including the ones in the kitchen and bathrooms. I, well, I had been in those uh, with people that we met and I got to know and became friends with. But uh, I was referring to where we stayed or where we our crews were. I was trying to, it wasn't going to be up to the standards that these film crews would see uh, with a Hollywood production, but uh, 
we would try to do the best that was available in any place within, you know, feasibility. Of course. And in some locations, the best place was on a cot uh, uh, in the in the middle of the uh, open desert. We did. We did. We forgot about the cots. I knew there was something. <laughs> like uh, so the, so a nice a nice soft a bed of sand. Yeah, absolutely. Sleeping bags and a little uh, surplus army poncho worked real good. Okay, now in your in your subsequent travels, Jack, uh, I, I I must assume that you have traveled south of La Paz uh, to Cabo San Lucas and in Los Cabos. Absolutely. So you've seen it. You've seen the development. You've seen the increase in services and so forth. Was there any property south of La Paz that became your favorite? Uh, it, I, I wouldn't say anything stuck out because I was, you know, at that point I wasn't looking to relocate or do anything like that. I was just, uh, when I would go down in later years, it was to be with the people that I'd become friends with. Yeah, and you were on Pretty vacation. Much. I was, I going to say, uh, I was really viewing it as a tourist, and uh, so it was a, a different uh, set of eyes and viewpoints and parameters that I was in those uh, later places. Understood. And the change was wonderful, but it was different. Yeah. Completely. Now, especially considering your 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 experiences in 1969, shooting uh, the Mexican 1000. Uh, let me just remind everybody: we're uh, uh, on the air on Off Road Live. We're on every Monday, 4 West 7 East. And of course, uh, I'm your humble host, Monster Mike. The Baja Crew is here. We're in the Desert Tower Studios in the Big Bad Desert. Our friends are here with us: Ram Trucks, Marlboro, Hard Rock, Red Bull, Budweiser, the Baja Racing Hall. Of fame and of course go to cabosafari.com and uh, if you're interested in a Baja experience go to cabosafari.com now uh, we're on the air with uh, Igor and Jack of Baja Sun Films Igor the producer Jack the original director of the production in 1969 now Jack um, uh, did you ever yourself participate in any of the production or association with Steve McQueen and Bullet? Uh, actually, no. I had a lot of friends uh, that worked with Steve on Bullet. No, I was very busy uh, doing commercials in that era. Uh, the camera car, which was actually a Corvette, was built by a friend of mine, Pat Eustace. Uh, who originally had Pat uh, Eustace camera cars, um, and he built that, drove that. I had played with it before the production out in his new hall uh, uh, shop area, and the cameraman on Bullet uh, was a dear and wonderful friend of mine who was an incredible cameraman and a legend in his own right, uh, Bill Fraker. And um, Billy uh, probably went on to get more nominations uh, for Academy Awards 
than anybody I know of, uh, never getting the award, but uh, by his peers. Uh, and Billy just did wonderful films. We did a lot of work. I directed some and shot a lot of units on films that he did. And over the years, we became just uh, a great friendship that I cherish, and I, I miss Billy to this day. So uh, that was some of the background there. Well, uh, uh, Jack, let me uh, ask uh, the, the natural next question. I, I did have a long conversation with uh, Igor about uh, your marvelous work uh, on this uh, Legends of Baja uh, uh, Mexican 1000 coverage. Now, obviously, you, you took it as kind of a, uh, a, a news uh, 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 production because it did go to a, a wide world of uh, sports. But uh, tell me about uh, your your take on the adventure that that you went on, and that and the adventure uh, filming that you did throughout your life. Okay, but let me just say, uh, I really didn't uh, at that time look at uh, the Baja as a news uh, or a wide world of sport because I had done wide world. Uh, with car racing in Las Vegas and surfing and Huntington Beach and Reno Air Races and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, I was primarily, you know, we were in the commercial uh, era of that time where things were changing and also doing a few things in the theatrical world. But what I looked at it as a new way to do a documentary, and I was not a documentary a filmmaker. I mean, I had wanted to be at one point, but never evolved that way. But uh, I was looking at it a very uh, visual and getting into that film the feeling of the participants and the event. So uh, I didn't look at it as a news of chronically who won, who lost, but it was about the whole event. Yeah. Would you consider that it would be called, uh, that the, the nature of what you were going after was experiential? You were trying to document the experience. Uh, I would say that's correct. I don't think I would have used or understood that word, but uh, yes, it would be correct. Out of that, all out of all that wonderful stock that 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 you accomplished, what uh, what string of consciousness, what experience in what you what you captured, is what you consider to be the the essence of what you shot? Boy, that's a lot of question. I'm impressed. Uh, the uh, I I guess the essence is we tried with the the cameramen that I knew at the time and the way they looked at things, their ability to think on their own and visualize on their own, because definitely we weren't in constant contact, uh, was uh, a new direction of that era uh, of uh, putting and recording visually what we were seeing. Because all of us were not out of the news documentation 
uh, filmmakers at that time, which there was some really terrific guys doing things, especially in different areas. But we were all, all in all people that were working on the new visual look that was coming to TV commercials and in a very short time coming to the early music videos. And uh, uh, what was being done at this time would later transcend into motion pictures and eventually into television. But at that point, we were sort of the crossover young rebels that uh, weren't adhering to the old tried and true full light, full color frame uh, photography uh, of the studio era of the 40s and 50s and before. Well, obviously, the the roar of the uh, of the motors, the 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 the, the voices of the crowd um, are, are those important audio components of the experience. What music? Uh, and I love hearing that that you put Carlos Santana on on you know that you personally chose uh, for that uh, piece. But what other music? Did, did you want to place in there, considering that that I can tell now that music was an important component of your thought process here? Uh, uh, well, yeah, my strength was visuals, but certain music just made sense to me in that era. And like I said, uh, in one area I used uh, uh, a harmonic solo of uh, John Mayhall, I recall. But, uh, and, uh, if there was uh, where I wasn't in the music industry, I had people that were, and we were sort of paralleling each other. We were changing the way we visualized things, and they were changing in new directions of music. And, uh, I mean, it was terrific. It was, you, you, you don't know it at the time, you're just going with it and, you know, you're taking the road in front of you, but making decisions. And later on, you can look back and say, gee, what a wonderful opportunity we were given to bring out an individual or a new idea and to be along the, the trip with other people that felt similarly and uh, knowing that one of the parameters that I would set and convey to the people that worked with me was we weren't going to be held back or stereotyped into doing things the way they had been done. And uh, that was one of the main directions the way we did it. I mean, if something looked better on a tipped angle, well, that's what we were going to do, but that wasn't uh, accepted at that point, you know. And uh, but we did what we, myself and the people around us, individually thought was the most exciting way to bring what the essence and the emotions 
of what we were seeing onto a piece of film. Was there anything that you did uh, that you captured that that you that you feel you captured the emotion of of Baja racing it, that you can uh, remember at that time? Uh, yeah, I would. Boy, there's a lot of things, and there's so much variety, uh, which is so important. Uh, uh, and I mentioned before a little bit. I remember some of the. Uh, end of the, the day dust scenes and even some of the night work we did which was difficult at that time a film didn't have the speed anywhere near what we have available today and uh, and, and all the tools that, that are available to us but uh, a lot of that when you got down to just the bare thing of getting a, a correct image and composition within the challenges that were presented at that time of day, and and the mood sort of changed as Baja went from hot, dry daytime into the pleasant and quietness of the night and the new sounds that came out at night. So I would say that transitional time on some of our footage wasn't being covered at that point of time, but it was an important part that I felt we should be covering. And uh, as I think back on some of the visuals, uh, they're the most emotional, I would say. And I can imagine, I can see, I can picture in my mind's eye how uh, a scene, as an example, that is a, of a desert race course, it's all dusty, uh, could produce uh, different emotions out of someone of a, of a, a, a star-filled, moonless night where uh, the, the known and the unknown is very similar uh, in both of those scenes, considering, uh, you know, a racer's emotion of, of either uh, uh, victory or defeat, as is uh, said in the uh, uh, sports documentaries. Absolutely. And uh, it was just showing another side of Baja. I mean, whether it was trying to run uh, the low tide on the beaches of Punta Prieta to save some time to get to, you know, La Paz, but you had to do it at night. But where's, was there going to be enough light? Where was the moon going to be at what time? And uh, there was, uh, Baja had so it, it helped us explain the different identities of the land itself. That's why I tried to ask you a little bit about in at the, at the start about the land because so much of what we do in Baja racing involves the uh, the actual the territory. Um, the people are obviously uh, most important, and I would be remiss if I I didn't get to your uh, filmography and your your background, Jack is uh, quite amazing and if uh, we'd love for you to talk a little bit about what work you did before and after uh legends of baja boy that's uh well first of all 
the land is everything in Baja. I think the land creates the people. It creates the environment, the resilience, and the honesty, or even the simplicity of the basics of what Baja is. And Wonder- that- wonderfully said, Jack. That's a that's a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, insight. Um, far as what I've done, boy, you know, uh, uh, Billy Fraker, who I mentioned earlier, just a marvelous man. Uh, when people would ask Billy, what's your favorite film? And Billy had done so many major features in his lifetime. And Billy's answer was the next one. And uh, when they, and uh, I would say, and I don't really have a list of things I've done because with a 40 year career, uh, you, you're fortunate enough to work on projects that are just turn out to be more than you ever expected uh, based on the people and the, the, the concept. Uh, but I'm trying to say, they're so different. I was fortunate enough not to be a mainstream cameraman, but more where I would do individual units and visuals. And if anything, at one point I was referred to by Billy and other people as a cameraman's cameraman, where I could go in and add to something that hadn't been finished on a feature or a show they did. Uh, and uh, a lot of my work did involve lighting and stage and uh, miniature photography and aerial photography, underwater work, uh, and, more, and a lot of action stuff. In those days, the equipment wasn't always there for us. There were certain things that were just starting uh, out for us in aerial work and the, the great stuff that Nelson Tyler was developing and uh, Tom Patterson and other people like that. But a lot of what we needed in those days, we had to build it and create it on our own. And uh, the majority of uh, my camera rigs and equipment was stuff that I had to have made or machined and made myself. And uh, was fortunate enough to find the people that were creative enough that we could take an idea of what we wanted and reverse engineer it to, to build what we needed to do that particular uh, need and fill that need. But uh, I've been on so many fortunate uh, episodes uh, and adventures because a lot of my best shoots may have not been six weeks or 30 week features but were three day one day maybe two weeks to record what we had to do so there was just a numerous amount of work in different uh, fields of photography, 
in visual effects and other areas that I was able to do and was just very fortunate and blessed to be associated with and uh, work with other talented individuals where we just built on the creativity. Yeah, as an artist, it's just nice getting paid. Well, when we started, uh, and uh, it's funny you say that, because, uh, somebody contacted me earlier uh, today about a director that I was working for my earliest days as a cameraman and working any other job we could. It was a gentleman by the name of Ray Dennis Steckler. And uh, Ray was a famous low-budget, no-budget producer. He uh, was famous for actually doing the first monster musical. Uh, but uh, the people we worked with on those things in those days is we were all just trying to come up with a new direction, again, I'm saying. And uh, we worked together and we shared. And most of these people went on to a lot greater fame and uh, projects and money than maybe what I've done. But when we were doing those, you know, it was about doing the project. Yeah, we wanted to get paid. And, you know, big payroll in those days might have been $300 a week for a cameraman, which most of the time we never saw because... They could tell you one thing, and you, you may or may not have gotten it. But the important thing was for us to be working and trying to do what was just we wanted and was we were pushing to get out of ourselves to experiment, both in new equipment, new ways of processing film, new film stocks that we were pushing Kodak to come up with. Uh, there was so much new innovations that we were able to push the envelope in so many ways that uh, we could experiment and try these ideas for me on so many projects because in any given year uh, I could work on up to 50 to 100 different projects. Amazing. Uh, and thank you so much for the, the, the detailed uh, response on, on my questions. I mean, you're, you're a fabulous guest. Um, have in During your uh, career, have you done any water or underwater work uh, nearby Baja, California? Uh, I did... Uh, uh, Jim Cameron uh, had asked me originally to do, uh, work on his film, uh, The Abyss. I wasn't available. I was actually going to direct uh, and shoot some second unit on that back in uh, the Carolinas. But uh, I did work uh, at the tanks in Rosarita uh, on uh, Titanic uh, with Jim and uh, some of the scenes with the ship going down and under the grand staircase and uh, units like that. So, uh, yeah, I've worked in the Rosarita studios that were built for Titanic. 
When you were there, did you tell your uh, Baja racing stories over at the Rosarita Beach Hotel uh, bar? I don't recall. <laughs> I, I you know, uh, probably not because, uh, I mean, they're wonderful memories now, and I cherish them dearly. But, uh, you know, it's like I said before, you know, you're going to ask me, what's the favorite film I did? Well, there's ones that I have individual loves for the people or the the story we got out. But I'm also going to say to you, it's my next project. Absolutely. And, it's, it's, uh, uh, what are you going to be doing this afternoon or tomorrow? Exactly. And I have such love uh, for what we did in 69 and 70s on the Baja 1000. And yeah, there was, there's always been, you know, you have to put it aside to go other directions in life. And it's not pleasant. You accept it. And at the time, you're doing things that uh, you feel are more timely and, you know, a, a different direction. But what is so wonderful now is people like yourself, Igor, and the other people that I I can get involved in, and I can look back, and I surely don't think I'm old, and I don't look at myself that way, and I don't act that way uh, in what I do now, but uh, saying, isn't this nice? What we thought of and what we wanted to do almost 50 years ago, that same excitement and energy is there now. And that's a really refreshing and fulfilling thought. Well, Jack, there's no question that not only is the energy uh, here now, but it's absolutely palpable and uh, uh, perceptible and right on the surface of uh, your work. It's very obvious. So much so, I mean, I have to ask you, what I would consider to be a couple of personal questions, and that is, what kind of a relationship did you uh, either before or ultimately have with with guys like Steve McQueen or Jim Garner? Well, Jim's uh, Garner, I you know we would meet a little bit around the race, but it was, and I never worked with him beyond that. Uh, with Steve. Uh, there was much more contact. We had uh, ridden dirt bikes uh, in the desert. We'd go out to El Mirage and uh, ride, and uh, we talked about things uh, when we were uh, other projects he had called me in for when he first started Solar Productions, and that's when I first got to meet Steve. Uh, Actually, uh, the first time I met him, uh, he stood up from his desk as I walked in and moved as I was shaking his hand, and I knocked, I think, all his coffee off onto his table. But uh, and uh, but no. Did, did uh, you ever did uh, you ever get a phone call from Steve about uh, Lamont? Uh, no, he, uh, I was working on another project and. Uh, 
uh, Frankenheimer and some of the other people uh, were working in a really, uh, again, gifted cameraman was doing that sort of work with him and Johnny Stevens. And, uh, they're, you know, these are names and friends out of the past. But, uh, no, uh, besides working in uh, the Mexico 1000 with Steve, uh, I did stuff on some of his other features a little bit. But then we would just go out once in a while and play in the dirt, uh, you know, in the desert. And Steve was a really interesting person. He was extremely talented as an actor. And I guess I was real privileged, you know, to be part of, as limited as it was, to be at his home with uh, Nell and, and Chad and his sister when they were just little kids. And uh, stories that are, I think, very personal, so I won't share them. But uh, with him and his family, and even when he was still racing and his Part of Steve was the same as all the other guys, and part of Steve was still the superstar. And he had to balance that, and that was hard, uh, and it was very humorous. So, uh, and uh, I enjoyed that type of relationship uh, with Steve, and uh, and a lot of great memories and. Great. Well, uh, if you sports. well, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'll ask you a couple of inane, uh, non-personal. I hope non too personal questions. But uh, what was his favorite beer? What somebody else bought. <laughs> um, what was his favorite smoke? Uh, you know, I don't recall. Uh, in my memory, I don't think of Steve smoking. And I know oh, okay. we did. Okay. Um, uh, we what? Went, oh, go ahead. I'll share one thing, and I think maybe I had told Igor. Uh, sometimes when we'd go out to Elm Barrage, of course, Steve would bring the bikes. And uh, in those days, motorcycles and off-road equipment was changing. And he'd say, I'm going to bring the Huskies out for everybody. Well, that was great. You know, we couldn't afford them. And... Uh, so uh, I had a TR6 and a Victor at different times. But uh, we said, great. And then we'd go out to ride the desert, and we all had 250 Husqvarna's, and Steve had a 500. But uh, that was obviously, <laughs> that, that was just an accident, I'm sure. Sure. But, uh, and we'd drive back, and, uh, you know, we'd have breakfast and tips in the morning, and come back in the afternoon and stop at the A&W drive-in. And Steve said, I'm buying. And uh, so, uh, and he could well afford to buy the restaurant at that point in his life, uh, or the chain of them. But uh, we'd be sitting there, and uh, he'd make sure to let everybody know not to hog the French fries that he had bought for everybody. to share, but uh, he was a fun guy, and he came out with a lot of little one-liners that you really had to be there, and and they were about Steve, 
And, you know, he so much was the average working guy and wanted to always be that guy. But the conflict was he was a superstar and he knew it. And balancing those two was difficult. Uh, there was races in the 70s out in uh, Elsinore somewhere just hanging out afterwards with the other drivers and drinking beer and talking and, you know, uh, Steve saying, well, this is so good to be with my friends and real people and do this race. And one of the drivers using words I can't use, referring to Steve, that he's going to get in his helicopter and fly home while they can be on the 10 freeway for four <laughs> hours yeah. with, with the bike. And yeah. after, afterwards, and there was a helicopter there, and there was a crew, and Steve turned to his mechanics and said, you guys get in the helicopter, and he turned to Nell, and he said, put it in the pickup. And she knew what he meant, and Steve drove that truck home with the bikes in the back. And he wasn't doing it to to be picked up by anybody other than himself. And he so much really was and wanted to be the regular guy, but he was caught up in being a, a major celebrity at that time. When uh, when you were in in Baja, Mexico, were there any uh, episodes of your experience there that included Steve McQueen? Oh, I had one person that was working with me, uh, and I think uh, uh, he did. He was doing something and making some arrangements for something, and going through one of Steve's people, and who was then going back to Steve, and it was probably becoming a different story. And Steve came over to me and referred to this person that was working for me, and I remember Steve's words were, this guy is messing with my melon. And uh, and uh, once I explained what he had been asked, Bob had asked of his people, he said, yeah, well, now I know where the problem is. It's not the first time. Uh, Steve was a really easy guy. I didn't have any issues. It was... Like you said before, it was almost always on a handshake, and we knew what we were doing. And uh, it was just very enjoyable working with him. Okay. Just let me know if I'm uh, going someplace you don't want to go, but why did Steve end up at a, a Laetrile facility in Mexico? Well, I think at that point, uh, you know, and I was not in contact with Steve at that point in his life. Uh, all I can say is we were concerned. We had worked with him, and Billy had worked with him, and uh, other uh, people I knew had. We all knew him. You, you have somebody, and I don't know that it's any different today, you have cancer, and you're going to, go where you have to go to find that extraordinary cure or, 
you know, uh, experimental treatment. Uh, and that's what he was doing. He was trying to, you know, but Steve had smoked, and Steve had been around asbestos as a worker in his youth, and uh, it didn't work out for him. And, uh, yeah, they they still don't have a cure for that. Uh, asbestosis, no. Uh, and uh, we've gotten a lot of cures for a lot of the major types of cancer, uh, and I deal with it in where I am now in life with people with disabilities and uh, issues. So uh, we get into that a lot, but most of our cures and experimental drugs are driven by the marketplace of how many people have this issue and what's the marketplace going to be driven for the, the cure, which is millions of dollars to find out and, you know, venture capital to make it happen. So uh, they don't have an answer for a lot of these uh, issues. Uh, the same ones that Steve uh, was fighting the battle back then. Well, uh, the re the only reason why I ask is because I do recall that time period, and as a matter of fact, a racer that uh, I work with on a regular basis, a guy named Perry McNeil, who I mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, met Steve McQueen twice. He met him up in San Francisco during the uh, uh, the bullet shoot, and he also met him at a, at the Leotrell facility in Rosarito. Yes, uh, I. Knew Steve was down there at that point in his life. Uh, he and Nell weren't together. He was with uh, Allie McGraw at that point, right. and uh, so it was. And we hadn't seen each other for quite a few years. Uh, I would have personally uh, felt it would have been presumptuous on my part to try to reconnect with him at that point. And, uh, and I guess maybe behind it all, because uh, we don't want to see people, any people, let alone people we've known or cared about, in a different physical state through disease and illness. Especially when they're struggling for their life. Absolutely. So I was just like anybody else uh, in the industry. We heard certain things from within our industry, and then there was every once in a while something on the news. But uh, social media wasn't there. So Steve was, uh, you know, it was, it was a separate part of his last chapter in life down there. Is there, when he was with you and you were adventuring, is there anything that, that you could talk about that he would just give you singular uh, focus and, and he would attend to what you were saying? Uh, I would say even the first time I met him, uh, before he was doing a feature, 
that a good friend of mine had photographed Charlie Rocher Jr. Uh, his energies and uh, were and through the years, you know, we would, you know, contact would come and go. I mean, in no way would I presume to be on a continuous social basis with him or his family. But as uh, our paths would intertwine at different times, uh, his energies were always obvious to me and his willingness to do something new and innovative, not in any way ever afraid or inhibited by doing something different or not tried before. And I think that's what part of what made him a success on the screen. And, Especially uh, at that time, because I'm picking up from you, Jack, that, that that was that's an era that that was a very it seems like a very common thought that uh, something new, something innovative, something exciting. Yeah, in all sorts of ways, uh, mechanically, uh, chemically in film, actors, scripts, uh, music. That was it, and. And beyond the industry, like you say, it was the dawn of enlightenment for us, and uh, and Steve was very much that way. Yeah, and he he, did, he did not want to stay in the regular track. He wanted to jump out of that track and do something new. Right, and he didn't have to, because uh, I mean, he was could do whatever he wanted. I mean. And there was a point we were doing commercials with John DeLorean. And there was a point where Steve McQueen was going to be the voice of General Motors and, and particularly Chevrolet of GM. And it went very high up into the corporate status. And it eventually uh, didn't happen. And part of it was Steve wanted to do things different. He didn't want to do the way they had been done. And I think as an audience, we all saw that and appreciated and recognized that was part of his ability. Well, was it just a voiceover, or was he going to be the the image of, uh, proposed image of GM? Uh, as it was, as it came down to us in commercial production. He would be the spokesman for the the cars and the future direction cars would be going and the cars of that moment. What, was the, was, what was the objection? Uh, you know, that's all conjecture because I wasn't in any way part of that. Oh, okay. uh, but it was, you know, he was going to be involved at least to the public in every phase of engineering, manufacturing, design, and the, the spokesman for the company. And uh, and it went, uh, you know, and uh, part of the emphasis was uh, the new uh, wonder child of GM at that time was John DeLorean. Was it, uh, I mean, uh, well, without knowing the actual discussion, it's, 
sounds like a, a natural though, because DeLorean uh, kicked aside the uh, the old ways too, didn't he? Well, yeah. At that point, DeLorean was head of Chevrolet division of GM, mm-hmm. uh, and he was very involved in what was done for TV commercials as far as contact with myself or other individuals and companies that I worked for. Uh, As far as the other end of everything that DeLorean did in corporate and advertising, I was, you know, I have no knowledge of other than the commoner. But, uh, yeah, he was taking Chevrolet in a new direction in those days. Uh, and, And it was thought he was the heir apparent to become the head of General Motors. Well, he decided to go a different, unique way on his own right. Did you ever have a chance of uh, doing any work with or crossing paths with Bill Strop or the Ford people at that time? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, both in the race and uh, also uh, I did work uh, for the Purolator Corporation which, you know, had a lot of subsidies, uh, subsidiaries they owned, and stamp radiators and different uh, corporations. And they were very involved uh, with Strop uh, and Bill's efforts. And, uh, and he was a major player in those early years of racing, uh, along with, uh, but he was even more so than Vic Hickey. Vic was unique and very innovative and, you know, a lead engineer and, uh, from uh, General Motors. And Bill was, you know, worked in the direction with the Ford Motor Company. Did you do any uh, production work for uh, 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 with Bill or any of his subsidiaries? No, I never did. I did do Ford Motor Company and Lincoln car commercials and things, but that was separate and apart and wasn't uh, tied in in any way with off-road racing. Right. Have you kept any of those connections to Ford? Uh, Not at all. Understood. Well, tell me a little bit, uh, because we did a pre-show interview that you may want to listen to, of a 12-year-old young guy at the time, uh, one of the very first young racers in the Baja 1000, a gentleman by the name of Baja Bill Fuentes, who eventually uh, became very close friends with uh, Bill Strop during those very heady days. And we also, at the same time, had a a pre-show interview with... uh, Michael Noval, who was Don Francisco's uh, uh, kin, and he was roughly about the same age and similarly connected to Don Francisco also during the very uh, start of the Mexican 1000. You may may want... Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying, Don was a, a very much unrecognized part that helped create the interest and direction of off-road racing that it's become. And he was, you know, never really in the limelight or known about. But uh, he really was a major factor in those days of getting that sport uh, done. Well, let me let me express to you, uh, Jack, that 
an organization that I'm affiliated with, the Baja Racing Hall of Fame, named Don Francisco our very first inductee, and we consider him to be a pinnacle in uh, Baja Desert Racing, as a matter of fact, in uh, Baja Racing itself. Uh, He possibly could be the most influential uh, first person involved in modern desert racing. I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, I wasn't aware of it, but everything you say is spot-on correct in my view. Jack, we greatly appreciate that. Um, And I have to tell you, everybody that we've spoken to about Don Francisco, he's always held himself and his work to be above reproach and the utmost professionalism. Yeah, and if I would, and again, not knowing him on a personal, social level, but working with him, I would say my impression, besides of a tall, mature person, coming from a 20-year-old at that time, was when you were asked on a question, the answer you got was everything you needed to know and more. But at the same time, my impression of Don was very, uh, uh, I would say, uh, not self-serving, not flamboyant, uh, if anything, the stereotype of the quiet man uh, type individual. And uh, underneath that uh, pleasant person was this incredible knowledge of automobiles and performance and all sorts of other things that uh, was just beyond our scope of uh, comprehension. And he, he was, was just, a, he was a consummate motorsports expert. Yes, but he but he didn't talk about himself or his knowledge or all the things he involved in. I mean, like I said, it was only later that I was able to find out from him. Oh yeah, I I was involved in the Pikes Peak runs for Shell. Oh yeah, we did this, we did that, and it was all very nonchalant and non-self-serving. Isn't it amazing? I mean, you look at his resume. I mean, you even talk to people who knew, knew Bell Strop. They didn't even know that Don Francisco led his effort in the East African Safari Series. Yes, and I learned that later. But you never knew this from, from Don. And, and it goes to, you know, I guess when you are the source Some people want to talk about all the people they knew and all the things they did and whatever else they accomplished. And then there's the people that you see what has to be done and you get it done. And it's, it's, and the real way to accomplish things I think in life, and it goes beyond film, it's not about me, and it's not about us. It's about others. 
And if you take that viewpoint, and it doesn't always come to us early in life, you start to understand the real priorities and purpose. And uh, that gets a little personal, a little philosophical. I'm not ashamed of it. But, oh no, uh, Jack! Jack, you're you're dead on. I mean, when you have the the wonderful mindset of thinking about the sport, when you the thinking about others first, uh, you're obviously focused on what needs, what is critical to be accomplished, and those people get those things accomplished. But then it doesn't leave a whole bunch of time for self promotion. Exactly, and and that's where. You know, and not knowing it at the time, again, because of the age difference and trying to put a production on, uh, I can't say that I knew of what a, a pillar Don was at the time I was dealing with him. It was just a, a relationship based on that moment. And, uh, and uh, I would have cherished uh, having had something to be a man, around a man like that to be have as a mentor, uh, but that never was. But he was that type of person. Uh, and a lot of that idea, and you learn slowly from different people you're around, and it brings you to where you are at the moment. And at least for me, that is. And, it, uh, that's the that's the way it works for for me also, and our crew here are all uh, you know wagging their heads in the same direction. We all agree with you. Uh, this is the Baja crew with uh, Monster Mike uh, 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 interviewing uh, the wonderful uh, group of people at Baja Sun Films, and it's Igor and Jack. Uh, Igor, the producer, Jack, uh, the wonderful director of uh, Legends of Baja, and Jack. I I hope you don't mind, but. Uh, I'm going to get a little personal here, but the very same way that that you felt and uh, believed uh, of uh, Don Francisco, uh, I'm getting the same vibe from you, my friend, and I hope you don't mind that uh, uh, we get together on, on the show once in a while and we talk about not only about Baja Racing, but about your production in life. I would very much, I've enjoyed uh, one, your intuitiveness as uh, to know and guide me in the direction to give and open up thoughts and memories, but uh, to have the experience and the ability to do that. And, uh, yeah, where I've evolved to and working with totally, and Igor knows, uh, my focus is totally with, individuals with disabilities, physically, intellectually, uh, disabled veterans. And uh, it's the most fulfilling part of my life that I've ever had. Well, I, your intuitiveness also is uh, uh, very much appreciated over here. Uh, and uh, just simply as, a, as an artist and as a human being, uh, uh, God bless you for helping uh, those people that you help. No, no, they give me the, any reward. I'm the one who's blessed by it. So well, that's wonderful, Jack. Um, listen, I I hope you sincerely uh, 
uh, don't mind, but uh, we're going to bother you once in a while to to talk with you. You're a, 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 an immense a guest and uh, uh, great fun to talk to. Um, uh, Igor, I, I understand you're still there, right? Yes. Uh, Igor, is anything uh, to wrap up today's uh, show? Uh, and I can tell you right now, it'll be a first. And uh, anytime Jack wants to talk, it's been a wonderful couple of hours. Well, thank you. A lot of great memories uh, and great people you brought to mind to me. Well, we have lots more to talk about. We can, I know that uh, Igor knows this, too. We can be on the line for another couple of hours. <laughs> Well, you know, the passion, see, now you see what drew me to this film and this project, the passion that it speaks of, the innovation, the pushing of the boundaries from his end and his crew as the cinematographers and the cameramen. Look how it parallels the passion, the same passion, the same quest for innovation on the racers, on the cars, you know, from technology to the mental and, you know, stamina and all that, and... I think that spirit is not only still alive, but it is now three generations strong, and it's growing every year. And we're going to celebrate it on Thursday at uh, The Grove, the fabulous Independent Filmmakers Showcase Film Festival in West Hollywood, California. That's wonderful. Now, how do folks sign up for being a part of the festivities? Please go online to their website. It's ifsfilm.com, and they have a schedule there. Uh, they just released some more tickets and moved into a larger venue due to unprecedented demand. It's the 26th annual uh, festival, and it sure looks like this is going to be their biggest one. And we're very excited to be a part of it. And we're honored with uh, the award that they bestowed on our little film as the best documentary short for this year, for 2018. And we so look forward for uh, with uh, Jack and myself and our whole Boston Films team to be together at uh, such an event celebrating the magic of Baja. Absolutely. Well, Igor... Uh... Uh, thank you so much for uh, your uh, gracious participation in our humble uh, radio show, Off-Road Live. And, uh, uh, Jack, thank you for gracing us with your time. And, Igor, thanks for inviting us to be to participate in uh, promoting this uh, wonderful uh, project and uh, your artist's work with uh, uh, Jack and your whole team. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh I'm just, it's always enjoyable to meet people that are dedicated to what they do and professional about it. I hope the next time that you would want to do anything or question me, I would hope to be uh, in the same room with you and not have to just do this through a phone to you because I look forward to meeting you. That's very kind, Jack. I I will uh, make every effort so that we can do that as soon as possible, and I'm sure Igor will uh, will be a, a present party to that uh, very same uh, fiesta of uh, art and thought. Yes, let's all meet in Baja. Uh, that, I love the way you wrap uh, things up, Igor. You always do it in such a uh, fantastic, promotive way. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, gentlemen, thank you for being on Off-Road Live. Stay tuned, everybody. we got a couple of headlines. Thanks, gentlemen, for being on, and we look forward to your participation next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.
the Yardbirds smokestack lightning off-road live your humble host monster mike the baja crew again we want to tip our hat to the great people uh with igor and uh, the whole project legends of baja baja sun films uh folks jump on board and uh, and participate with igor and i this is going to be really fun a very fun project for uh, the desert racing community and everybody who's enthralled with uh the desert and uh, adventure worldwide. Uh, jump on board now. Now's the time to get on board. All right, everybody. Remember, upcoming the Off-Road Expo is coming up. 2018 official King of Baja Off-Road Expo in Baja California South, in Todos Santos, Baja California South. Enjoy the best desert off-road Baja race and recreation in Baja, Mexico. For more details, call six one nine. Two five one six zero zero five. That's six one nine two five one six zero zero five. And you know the official race this year that's been chosen is is one of my personal favorites. It starts in the Magic Pueblo of Todos Santos, right next to Hotel California. Hello, Deborah. Hello, Alejandro, and the entire crew at Hotel California. And uh, we will be racing north to just outside of La Paz on the golden sands of Tecolote Beach that look at the beautiful islands in the Sea of Cortez. It's a great finish line, great finish line activities. That is the Coyote 300. Celebrate the best race and recreation this year in Baja, Mexico. That's right, the Off-Road Expo the King of Baja Off-Road Expo, coming up in just a mere matter of days, June 15th through the 18th in Baja, California. Also, remember that um, this year's uh, Dos Mares had a particularly uh, nasty incident that's pictured at the top of the page at BajaRacingNews.com. That image comes directly from the Dos Mares race this year that just occurred this past weekend uh, outside of La Paz. We'll have more details next week. Today, obviously, we had lots of on, on our plate, so we'll we'll talk about the race results and the exciting events that occurred outside of La Paz at the Dos Mares race next week. Also, you may want to uh, peer into our pre-show interview. Great pre-show interview today. Uh, Tune in for Baja Bill Fuentes and, of course, Michael Noval. They were both on the line uh, in a pre-show interview earlier today. Uh, And, of course, coming up uh, in Ensenada, the capital of off-road, you may want to uh, visit King of Baja, Estero Beach. The battle south of the border is May 18th through the 20th. All the festivities start in less than 10 days. The King of Baja, Estero Beach, short course, May 18th and 20th. You can either tune in live to BajaRacingNews.com, get all your race information, or join us. Go to BajaSafari.com and join us. We'll be heading down to Estero Beach and the battle south of the border with Lucas Oil and everybody with BajaRacingNews.com. This is Monster Mike. You're listening live to Off-Road Live. Every Monday, 4 West, 7 East.
Off-Road Live. Thanks very much for joining us, everybody. You know, it's been one of those shows that, well, quite frankly, it goes into the record books. One of the halls of fame of Off-Road Radio. Off-Road Live. And, of course, Ram Trucks. Marlboro. Hard Rock. Budweiser. Red Bull. And the Baja Racing Hall of Fame. They all participated as friends in this show. And, of course, uh, our our great crew was in its entirety here because we knew what kind of uh, work we were going to be producing today. I want to thank all of the Baja crew for coming in today, putting in their time. And, of course, uh, they need to because they need to build up their credits for the next trip. And everybody knows what that means. We are going to be going down to Ensenada for the Estero Beach event. you got to join us or just tune in to BajaRacingNews.com. That's right, BajaRacingNews.com. You can tune in for all the action in less than 10 days, and we'll put it all on the radio for you, both on the Internet and on our audio stream. So you definitely want to pitch in. And join us for the show, both online and with us, live, on Off-Road Live, a Fox Sports affiliate. Thanks very much for joining us, folks. We'll see you next week. I can't wait forever. Even though he wants me to, I if you'll be true, time won't let me.